0: Is Andre Louis' future compromised after he is mistaken for a nobleman in disguise? Raphael Sabatini, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all of our financial supporters. With us giving away so much free material during this time of the pandemic, we need your help more than ever. Thank you so much for stepping up and helping to keep us going strong. In case you haven't already, feel free to take advantage of our free titles. We have a few short stories and a few full-length novels available free for your enjoyment. We also have a new website. Check out our new website at classictalesaudiobooks.com. It's easier than ever to get where you need to go. classictalesaudiobooks.com And thank you to Annie from the Join Us in France podcast, who helped with the pronunciations of the French names and phrases for this week's episode. If you're interested in France at all, you should check out her show. It's fantastic. Since we're doing poems from John Donne, I thought that we should actually share today's poem here, rather than just in the app area for special features. It will be there too, if you just want to hear the poem. This was written around 1623, around 400 years ago. I had heard this, but I'd never really studied it, or understood it. It's taken from a prose piece he wrote, called Devotions Upon Emergent Occasions. It's in Part 17, Meditation. No man is an island, entire of itself. Each is a part of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thy friends or of thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me, because I am involved in mankind. Therefore, send not to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. So in these times, the church bells would ring to announce to the countryside important occasions, such as a funeral. No man is an island means we are all a part of the whole, whether we like it or acknowledge it or not. If one clod is washed away from the shore, Europe is less. If one person dies, we are diminished. For whom does the bell toll? Who just died? Well, when anyone dies, we all die a little. So the bell is tolling for you. I took my two youngest to the mall for the first time in months. We all three wore masks. Scylla made them for us and they're super cute. We were harassed by a fellow patron at the food court. Ridiculed by an intimidating stranger for wearing masks. We're at that point. Again, any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. We're all in this together. Please, stay safe. Wear a mask. Keep your loved ones safe. Keep strangers safe. It's not about politics. It's just about taking care of each other. Because when one person dies, we all die a little. So here's the story so far. André Louis, a privileged lawyer from Gavriac, is on a mission to speak out for the downtrodden. After speaking out in Rennes, and later at Nantes, he is on the run from the law, who wished to take him to task for inciting rebellion. He runs across some traveling players and is a cracking success, as an actor and author. Then, as he and his fiance are returning home after a fantastic performance, a coach stops, the door is opened, and André-Louis sees Aline, his closest friend in the whole world, who has been worried sick. And now, Scaramouche, part 6 of 12, by Raphael Sabatini. CHAPTER Eight, THE DREAM door Aline commanded her footman, and, Mount here beside me, she commanded André-Louis, in the same breath. A moment, Aline. He turned to his companion, who was all amazement, and to Harlequin and Columbine, who at that moment come up to share it. You permit me, Clement? said he, breathlessly, "'but it was more a statement than a question. "'Fortunately, you are not alone. "'Harlequin will take care of you. "'Au revoir, at dinner.' "'With that, he sprang into the cabriolet "'without waiting for a reply. "'The footman closed the door, "'the coachman cracked his whip, "'and the royal equipage rolled away along the quay, "'leaving the three comedians staring after it open-mouthed. "'Then Harlequin laughed.' A prince in disguise, our Scaramouche, said he. Columbine clapped her hands and flashed her strong teeth. But what a romance for you, Clemen! How wonderful! The frown melted from Clemen's brow. Resentment changed to bewilderment. But who is she? His sister, of course, said Harlequin, quite definitely. His sister? How do you know? "'I know what he will tell you on his return. "'But why? "'Because you wouldn't believe him "'if he said she was his mother.' "'Following the carriage, with their glance, "'they wandered on in the direction it had taken. "'And in the carriage, Aline was considering André-Louis "'with grave eyes, lips slightly compressed, "'and a tiny frown between her finely drawn eyebrows. "'You have taken to queer company, André,' Was the first thing she said to him Or else I am mistaken In thinking that your companion Was Mademoiselle Binet Of the Théâtre You are not mistaken But I had not imagined Mademoiselle Binet So famous already Oh, as to that Mademoiselle shrugged Her tone quietly scornful And she explained It was simply that I was at the play Last night I thought I recognized her You were at the fe last night? And I never saw you, were you there too? Was I there? He cried, then he checked and abruptly changed his tone. Oh, yes, I was there. He said as commonplace as he could, beset by a sudden reluctance to avow that he had so willingly descended to depths that she must account unworthy, and grateful that his disguise of face and voice should have proved impenetrable even to one who knew him so very well. "'I understand,' said she, "'and compressed her lips a little more tightly. "'But what do you understand?' "'The rare attractions of Mademoiselle Binet. "'Naturally, you would be at the theatre. "'Your tone conveyed it very clearly. "'Do you know that you disappoint me, André? "'It is stupid of me, perhaps. "'It betrays, I suppose, "'my imperfect knowledge of your sex. "'I am aware that most young men of fashion "'find an irresistible attraction.' creatures who parade themselves upon the stage. "'But I did not expect you to ape the ways of a man of fashion. "'I was foolish enough to imagine you to be different, "'rather above such trivial pursuits. "'I conceived you something of an idealist, sheer flattery. "'So I perceive. "'But you misled me. "'You talked so much morality of a kind, "'you made philosophy so readily, "'that I came to be deceived.' In fact, your hypocrisy was so consummate that I never suspected it. With your gift of acting, I wonder you haven't joined Mademoiselle Binet's troupe.' "'I have,' said he. It had really become necessary to tell her, making choice of the lesser of the two evils with which she confronted him. He saw first incredulity, then consternation, and lastly disgust overspread her face. "'Of course!' "'said she, after a long pause. "'That would have the advantage "'of bringing you closer to your charmer. "'That was only one of the inducements. "'There was another. "'Finding myself forced "'to choose between the stage and the gallows, "'I had the incredible weakness "'to prefer the former. "'It was utterly unworthy of a man "'of my lofty ideals, but what would you? "'Like other ideologists, "'I find it easier to preach than to practice.' "'Shall I stop the carriage and remove the contamination of my disgusting person, "'or shall I tell you how it happened? "'Tell me how it happened first. "'Then we will decide.' "'He told her how he met the Binet troupe, "'and how the men of the Marais-Chaussée forced upon him the discovery, "'that in its bosom he could lie safely lost until the hue and cry had died down. "'The explanation dissolved her iciness.' My poor André, why didn't you tell me this at first? For one thing, you didn't give me time. For another, I feared to shock you with the spectacle of my degradation. She took him seriously. But where was the need of it? And why did you not send us word as I required you of your whereabouts? I was thinking of it only yesterday. I have hesitated for several reasons. You thought it would offend us to know what you are doing. I think that I prefer to surprise you by the magnitude of my ultimate achievements. Oh, you are to become a great actor. She was frankly scornful. That is not impossible, but I am more concerned to become a great author. There is no reason why you should sniff. The calling is an honourable one, and the world is proud to know such men as Beaumarchais and Chenier. And you hope to equal them? I hope to surpass them whilst acknowledging that it was they who taught me how to walk. What did you think of the play last night? It was amusing and well-conceived. Let me present you to the author. You? But the company is one of the improvisers. Even improvisers require an author to write their scenarios. That is all I write at present. Soon I shall be writing plays in the modern manner. You deceive yourself, my poor André. The piece last night... "'would have been nothing without the players. "'You are fortunate in your Scaramouche. "'In confidence, I present you to him. "'You? Scaramouche? You?' "'She turned to regard him fully. "'He smiled his close-lipped smile "'that made wrinkles like gashes in his cheeks. "'He nodded. "'And I didn't recognize you. "'I thank you for the tribute. "'You imagined, of course, that I was a scene-shifter.' "'and now that you know all about me, "'what of Gavriac, what of my godfather?' "'He was well,' she told him, "'and still profoundly indignant with André-Louis for his defection, "'whilst secretly concerned on his behalf. "'I shall write him to-day that I have seen you. "'Do so. "'Tell him that I am well and prospering, "'but say no more. "'Do not tell him what I am doing. "'He has his prejudices, too. "'Besides, it might not be prudent.' And now the question I have been burning to ask ever since I entered your carriage, why are you in Nantes, Aline? I am on a visit to my aunt, Madame de Sautron. It was with her that I came to the play yesterday. We have been dull at the chateau, but it will be different now. Madame, my aunt, is receiving several guests today. Monsieur de la Tour d'Azire is to be one of them. André Louis frowned and sighed. Did you ever hear, Aline, how poor Philippe de Villemorin came by his end? Yes, I was told, first by my uncle, then by Monsieur de la Tour d'Azire himself. Did not that help you decide, this marriage question? How could it? You forget that I am but a woman. You don't expect me to judge between men in matters such as these? Why not? You are well able to do so. "'the more since you had heard two sides, "'for my godfather would tell you the truth. "'If you cannot judge, "'it is that you do not wish to judge.' "'His tone became harsh. "'Willfully you close your eyes to justice "'that might check the course "'of your unhealthy, unnatural ambition.' "'Excellent!' she exclaimed, "'and considered him with amusement "'and something else. "'Do you know that you are almost droll? "'Your eyes unblushing?' from the dregs of life in which I find you, and shake off the arm of that Théâtre-girl, and come and preach to me. If these were the dregs of life, I might still speak from them, to counsel you out of my respect and devotion, Aline." He was very stiff and stern. But they are not the dregs of life. Honour and virtue are possible to a theatre-girl. They are impossible a lady who sells herself to gratify ambition, "'who, for position, riches, and a great title, "'barters herself in marriage.' "'She looked at him breathlessly. "'Anger turned her pale. "'She reached for the cord. "'I think I had better let you alight, "'so that you may go back to practice virtue and honour "'with your théâtre wench. "'You shall not speak so of her, Aline. "'Now we are to have heat on her behalf.' "'You think I am too delicate? "'You think I should speak of her as a—' "'If you must speak of her at all,' he interrupted hotly, "'you'll speak of her as my wife.' "'Amazement smothered her anger. "'Her pallor deepened. "'My God!' she said, "'and looked at him in horror. "'And in horror she asked him presently, "'You are married? "'Married to that?' "'Not yet.' "'but I shall be, soon. "'And let me tell you "'that this girl whom you visit "'with your ignorant contempt "'is as good and pure as you are, Aline. "'She has wit and talent "'which have placed her where she is, "'and shall carry her a deal farther, "'and she has the womanliness "'to be guided by natural instincts "'in the selection of her mate.' "'She was trembling with passion. "'She tugged the cord.' "'You will descend this instant,' she told him fiercely, "'that you should dare to make a comparison "'between me and that—and my wife-to-be,' he interrupted, "'before she could speak the infamous word. "'He opened the door for himself "'without waiting for the footman, and leapt down. "'My compliments,' said he furiously, "'to the assassin you are to marry.' "'He slammed the door. "'Drive on,' he bade the coachman. The carriage rolled away up the faubourg Gigon, leaving him standing where he had alighted, quivering with rage. Gradually, as he walked back to the inn, his anger cooled. Gradually, as he cooled, he perceived her point of view, and in the end forgave her. It was not her fault that she thought as she thought. Her rearing had been such as to make her look upon every actress as a trull, just as it had qualified her calmly to consider the monstrous marriage of convenience into which she was invited. He got back to the inn to find the company at table. Silence fell when he entered, so suddenly that of necessity it must be supposed he was himself the subject of the conversation. Harlequin and Columbine had spread the tale of this prince in disguise, caught up in the chariot of a princess, and carried off by her and it was a tale that had lost nothing in the telling. Clemen had been silent and thoughtful, pondering what Columbine had called this romance of hers. Clearly her scaramouche must be vastly other than he had hitherto appeared, or else that great lady and he would never have used such familiarity with each other. Imagining him no better than he was, Clemen had made him her own, and now she was to receive the reward of disinterested affection. Even old Binet's secret hostility towards André-Louis melted before this astounding revelation. He had pinched his daughter's ear quite playfully. Ha-ha! Trust you to have penetrated his disguise, my child. She shrank resentfully from that implication. But I did not. I took him for what he seemed. Her father winked at her very solemnly, and laughed. "'To be sure you did. But like your father, who was once a gentleman, and who knows the ways of gentlemen, you detected in him a subtle something different from those with whom misfortune has compelled you hitherto to herd. You knew as well as I did that he never caught the trick of haughtiness, that grand air of command, in a lawyer's musty office, and that his speech had hardly the ring or his thoughts the complexion of the bourgeois that he pretended to be, and it was shrewd of you to have made him yours. You know that I shall be very proud of you yet, Climent? She moved away without answering. Her father's oiliness offended her. Scaramouche was clearly a great gentleman, an eccentric, if you please, but a man born. and She was to be his lady.' Her father must learn to treat her differently. She looked shyly, with a new shyness, at her lover when he came into the room where they were dining. She observed for the first time that proud carriage of the head with a chin thrust forward. That was a trick of his, and she noticed with what a grace he moved, the grace of one who in youth has had his dancing-masters and fencing-masters. It almost hurt her, when he flung himself into a chair and exchanged a quip with Harlequin in the usual manner as with an equal, and defended her still more that Harlequin, knowing what he now knew, should use him with the same unbecoming familiarity. Chapter 9 The Awakening Do you know, said Clemence, "'that I am waiting for the explanation which I think you owe me?' "'They were alone together, "'lingering still at the table to which André-Louis had come belatedly, "'and André-Louis was loading himself a pipe. "'Of late, since joining the Binet troupe, "'he had acquired the habit of smoking. "'The others had gone, some to take the air, "'and others, like Binet and Madame, "'because they felt that it were discreet "'to leave those two to the explanations that must pass. "'It was a feeling that André-Louis did not share. "'He kindled a light and leisurely applied it to his pipe. "'A frown came to settle on his brow. "'Explanation?' he questioned presently, "'and looked at her. "'But on what score?' "'On the score of the deception you have practised on us. "'On me?' "'I have practised none,' he assured her. "'You mean that you have simply kept your own counsel, "'and that in silence there is no deception, "'but it is deceitful to withhold facts concerning yourself "'and your true station from your future wife. "'You should not have pretended to be a simple country lawyer, "'which, of course, any one could see that you are not. "'It may have been very romantic, but... "'Enfin, will you explain?' "'I see,' he said, and pulled at his pipe. "'But you are wrong, Clemen. "'I have practised no deception. "'If there are things about me which I have not told you, "'it is that I do not account them of much importance. "'But I have never deceived you "'by pretending to be other than I am. "'I am neither more nor less than I have represented myself.' "'This persistence began to annoy her, "'and the annoyance showed on her winsome face.' Colored her voice. "'Ha! "'And that fine lady of the nobility "'with whom you are so intimate, "'who carried you off in her cabriolet "'with so little ceremony towards myself, "'what is she to you?' "'A sort of sister,' said he. "'A sort of sister?' "'She was indignant. "'Harlequin foretold that you would say so, "'but he was amusing himself. "'It was not very funny. "'It is less funny still from you. "'She has a name, I suppose.' "'this sort of sister?' "'Certainly she has a name. "'She is Mademoiselle Aline de Kirkadu, "'the niece of Canton de Kirkadu, "'Lord of Gavriac. Oh, "'Oh, that's a sufficiently fine name "'for your sort of sister. "'What sort of sister, my friend?' "'For the first time in their relationship "'he observed and deplored "'the taint of vulgarity, "'of shrewishness in her manner.' It would have been more accurate in me to have said a sort of reputed left-handed cousin. A reputed left-handed cousin? And what sort of relationship may that be? Faith, you dazzle me with your lucidity. It requires to be explained. That is what I have been telling you. But you seem very reluctant with your explanations. Oh, no, it is only that they are so unimportant. But be you the judge. Her uncle, Monsieur de Cercadour, "'is my godfather, "'and she and I have been playmates "'from infancy as a consequence. "'It is popularly believed in Gavriac "'that Monsieur de Cercadoux is my father. "'He has certainly cared for my rearing "'from my tenderest years, "'and it is entirely owing to him "'that I was educated at Louis-le-Grand. "'I owe to him everything that I have, "'or rather everything that I had, "'for of my own free will "'I have cut myself adrift.' and to-day I possess nothing save what I can earn for myself in the theatre or elsewhere. She sat stunned and pale under that cruel blow to her swelling pride. Had he told her this but yesterday, it would have made no impression upon her. It would have mattered not at all. The event of to-day coming as a sequel would but have enhanced him in her eyes. But coming now... "'after her imagination had woven for him "'so magnificent a background, "'after the rashly assumed discovery "'of his splendid identity "'had made her the envied of all the company, "'after having been in her own eyes and theirs "'enshrined by marriage with him as a great lady, "'this disclosure crushed and humiliated her. "'Her prince in disguise "'was merely the outcast bastard of a country gentleman.' she would be the laughing-stock of every member of her father's troupe, of all those who had so lately envied her this romantic good fortune. "'You should have told me this before,' she said, in a dull voice that she strove to render steady. "'Perhaps I should. But does it really matter?' "'Matter?' She suppressed her fury to ask another question. "'You say that this Monsieur de Cercadoux "'is popularly believed to be your father. "'What precisely do you mean?' "'Just that. "'It is a belief that I do not share. "'It is a matter of instinct, perhaps, with me. "'Moreover, once I asked Mr. Kerkadu, point-blank, "'and I received from him a denial. "'It is not, perhaps, a denial to which one would attach "'too much importance in all the circumstances. "'Yet I have never known, Monsieur de Kerkadu, "'or other than a man of strictest honour and I should hesitate to disbelieve him, particularly when his statement leaps with my own instincts. He assured me that he did not know who my father was. And your mother, was she equally ignorant? She was sneering, but he did not remark it. Her back was to the light. He would not disclose her name to me. He confessed her to be a dear friend of his. She startled him by laughing, and her laugh was not pleasant. "'A very dear friend, you may be sure, you simpleton! "'What name do you bear?' "'He restrained his own rising indignation "'to answer her question calmly. Moreau, "'It was given to me, so I am told, "'from the Brittany village in which I was born. "'But I have no claim to it. "'In fact, I have no name, "'unless it be Scaramouche, "'to which I have earned a title. "'So that you see, my dear,' He ended with a smile I have practised No deception whatever No No I see that now She laughed without mirth Then drew a deep breath And rose I am very tired She said He was on his feet in an instant All solicitude But she waved him wearily back I think I will rest Until it is time to go to the theatre She moved towards the door dragging her feet a little. He sprang to open it, and she passed out without looking at him. Her so brief romantic dream was ended. The glorious world of fancy, which in the last hour she had built with such elaborate detail, over which it should be her exalted destiny to rule, lay shattered about her feet. Its debris, so many stumbling blocks, that prevented her from winning back to her erstwhile content in Scaramouche, as he really was. André-Louis sat in the window embrasure, smoking and looking idly out across the river. He was intrigued and meditative. He had shocked her, the fact was clear, not so the reason. That he should confess himself nameless should not particularly injure him in the eyes of a girl reared amid the surroundings that had been Clemens and yet that his confession had so injured him was fully apparent. There, still at his brooding, the returning Columbine discovered him a half-hour later. All alone, my prince? was her laughing greeting, which suddenly threw light upon his mental darkness. Climène had been disappointed of hopes that the wild imagination of these players had suddenly erected upon the incident of his meeting with Aline. Poor child! "'He smiled whimsically at Columbine. "'I am likely to be so for some little time,' said he, "'until it becomes a commonplace that I am not, after all, a prince. "'Not a prince? "'Oh, but a duke, then, at least a marquis. "'Not even a chevalier, unless it be of the order of fortune. "'I am just Scaramouche. "'My castles are all in Spain.' "'Disappointment clouded the lively, good-natured face.' "'and I had imagined you—' "'I know,' he interrupted. "'That is the mischief.' "'He might have gauged the extent of that mischief "'by Clemence's conduct that evening "'towards the gentlemen of fashion, "'who clustered now in the green-room "'between the acts to pay their homage "'to the incomparable amoureuse. "'Hitherto she had received them "'with a circumspection compelling respect. "'To-night she was recklessly gay, "'impudent, almost wanton.' He spoke of it gently to her As they walked home together Counselling more prudence in the future We are not married yet She told him tartly Wait until then Before you criticise my conduct I trust that there will be no occasion then Said he You trust Oh yes You are very trusting Clemen, I have offended you I am sorry It is nothing She said "'you are what you are.' "'Still was he not concerned. "'He perceived the source "'of her ill-humour, "'understood whilst deploring it, "'and, because he understood, "'forgave. "'He perceived also "'that her ill-humour "'was shared by her father, "'and by this he was frankly amused. "'Towards Monsieur Binet, "'a tolerant contempt "'was the only feeling "'that complete acquaintance "'could beget. "'As for the rest of the company,' they were disposed to be very kindly towards Scaramouche. It was almost as if in reality he had fallen from the high estate to which their own imaginations had raised him, or possibly it was because they saw the effect which that fall from his temporary and fictitious elevation had produced upon Climène. Leandre alone made himself an exception. His habitual melancholy seemed to be dispelled at last, and his eyes gleamed now with malicious satisfaction when they rested upon Scaramouche, whom occasionally he continued to address with sly mockery as Mon Prince. On the morrow, André-Louis saw but little of Climène. This was not in itself extraordinary, for he was very hard at work again, with preparations now for Figaro Scaramouche, which was to be played on Saturday. Also, "'In addition to his manifold theatrical occupations, "'he now devoted an hour every morning "'to the study of fencing in an academy of arms. "'This was done not only to repair an omission in his education, "'but also, and chiefly, "'to give him added grace and poise upon the stage. "'He found his mind that morning distracted "'by thoughts of both Climène and Aline, "'and, oddly enough, it was Aline "'who provided the deeper perturbation.' Clement's attitude he regarded as a passing phase, which need not seriously engage him, but the thought of Aline's conduct towards him kept rankling, and still more deeply rankled the thought of her possible betrothal to Monsieur de la Tour d'Azire. This it was that brought forcibly to his mind the self-imposed but by now half-forgotten mission that he had made his own. He had boasted that he would make the voice "'which Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir had sought to silence, "'ringed through the length and breadth of the land. "'And what had he done of all this that he had boasted? "'He had incited the mob of Rennes and the mob of Nantes, "'in such terms as poor Philippe might have employed, "'and then because of a hue and cry he had fled like a cur, "'and taken shelter in the first kennel that offered, "'there to lie quiet and devote himself to other things, "'self-seeking things.' to find contrast between the promise and the fulfilment. Thus André-Louis to himself, in his self-contempt. And whilst he trifled away his time and played Scaramouche, and centred all his hopes in presently becoming the rival of such men as Chenier and Mercier, Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir went his proud ways unchallenged and wrought his will. It was idle to tell himself that the seed he had sown was bearing fruit, that the demands he had voiced in Nantes for the third estate had been granted by Monsieur Necker, thanks largely to the commotion which his anonymous speech had made. That was not his concern or his mission. It was no part of his concern to set about the regeneration of mankind, or even the regeneration of the social structure of France. His concern was to see that Monsieur de la Tour d'Azur paid to the uttermost leard for the brutal wrong he had done Philippe de Villemorin. And it did not increase his self-respect to find that the danger in which Aline stood of being married to the Marquis was the real spur to his rancour and to remembrance of his vow. He was, too unjustly perhaps, disposed to dismiss as mere sophistries his own arguments that there was nothing he could do, that in fact he had but to show his head to find himself going to Rennes under arrest and making his final exit from the world stage by way of the gallows. It is impossible to read that part of his confessions without feeling a certain pity for him. You realise what must have been his state of mind, you realise what a prey he was to emotions so conflicting, and if you have the imagination that will enable you to put yourself in his place, you will also realise how impossible was any decision save the one to which he says he came, that he would move, at the first moment that he perceived in what direction it would serve his real aims to move. It happened that the first person he saw when he took the stage on that Thursday evening was Aline, the second was the Marquis de la Tour d'Azire. They occupied a box on the right of, and immediately above, the stage. There were others with him, notably a thin elderly resplendent lady, whom André-Louis supposed to be Madame de la Comtesse de Sautron, but at the time he had no eyes for any but those two, who of late had so haunted his thoughts. The sight of either of them would have been sufficiently disconcerting. The sight of both together very nearly made him forget the purpose for which he had come upon the stage. "'Then he pulled himself together and played. "'He played, he says, with an unusual nerve, "'and never in all that brief but eventful career of his "'was he more applauded. "'That was the evening's first shock. "'The next came after the second act. "'Entering the green-room, "'he found it more thronged than usual, "'and at the far end with Climène, "'over whom he was bending from his fine height, his eyes intent upon her face, what time his smiling lips moved in talk, Monsieur de la Tour d'Azire. He had her entirely to himself, a privilege none of the men of fashion who were in the habit of visiting the coulisse had yet enjoyed. Those lesser gentlemen had all withdrawn before the Marquis, as jackals withdraw before the lion. André-Louis stared a moment, stricken, then, recovering from his surprise, he became critical in his study of the Marquis. He considered the beauty and grace and splendour of him, his courtly air, his complete and unshakable self-possession, but more than all he considered the expression of the dark eyes that were devouring Clemence's lovely face, and his own lips tightened. Monsieur de la Tour d'Azire never heeded him or his stare, nor— had he done so, would he have known who it was that looked at him from behind the make-up of Scaramouche? Nor again had he known, would he have been in the least troubled or concerned? André-Louis sat down apart, his mind in turmoil. Presently he found a mincing young gentleman addressing him, and made shift to answer as was expected. Clemen having been thus sequestered, and Columbine being already thickly besieged by gallants the lesser visitors had to content themselves with Madame and the male members of the troupe. Monsieur Binet, indeed, was the centre of a gay cluster that shook with laughter at his sallies. He seemed of a sudden to have emerged from the gloom of the last two days into high good humour, and Scaramouche observed how persistently his eyes kept flickering upon his daughter and her splendid courtier. That night— there were high words between André-Louis and Climène, the high words proceeding from Climène. When André-Louis again, and more insistently, enjoined prudence upon his betrothed, and begged her to beware how far she encouraged the advances of such a man as Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir, she became roundly abusive. She shocked and stunned him by her virulently shrewish tone, and her still more unexpected force of invective. He sought to reason with her, and finally she came to certain terms with him. "'If you have become betrothed to me simply to stand as an obstacle in my path, the sooner we make an end, the better.' "'You do not love me, then, Clemen? Love has nothing to do with it. I'll not tolerate your insensate jealousy. A girl in the theatre must make it her business to accept homage from all.' Agreed. "'And there is no harm.' provided she gives nothing in exchange. White-faced, with flaming eyes, she turned on him at that. Now what exactly do you mean? My meaning is clear. A girl in your position may receive all the homage that is offered, provided she receives it with a dignified aloofness, implying clearly that she has no favours to bestow in return beyond the favour of her smile." If she is wise, she will see to it that the homage is always offered collectively by her admirers, and that no single one amongst them shall ever have the privilege of approaching her alone. If she is wise, she will give no encouragement, nourish no hopes, that it may afterwards be beyond her power to deny realisation. How you dare! I know my world, and I know Monsieur de la Tour d'Azire, he answered her. He is a man without charity, without humanity almost, a man who takes what he wants wherever he finds it, and whether it is given willingly or not. A man who reckons nothing of the misery he scatters on his self indulgent way, a man whose only law is force. Ponder it, Clemen, and ask yourself if I do you less than honour in warning you. He went out on that, feeling a degradation in continuing the subject. THE DAYS THAT FOLLOWED WERE UNHAPPY DAYS FOR HIM, AND FOR AT LEAST ONE OTHER. THE OTHER WAS LEANDRE, WHO WAS CAST INTO THE PROFOUNDEST DEJECTION BY Monsieur DE LA TOUR-D'AZIR'S ASSIDUOUS ATTENDANCE UPON CLIMEN. THE MARQUIS WAS TO BE SEEN AT EVERY PERFORMANCE, A BOX WAS PERPETUALLY RESERVED FOR HIM, AND INVARIABLY HE CAME EITHER ALONE, OR ELSE WITH HIS COUSIN, Monsieur DE CHABRIAN. ON TUESDAY OF THE FOLLOWING WEEK, André-Louis went out alone early in the morning. He was out of temper, fretted by an overwhelming sense of humiliation, and he hoped to clear his mind by walking. In turning the corner of the Place de Bouffet, he ran into a slightly built, sallow-complexioned gentleman, very neatly dressed in black, wearing a tie-wig under a round hat. The man fell back at sight of him, levelling a spyglass. then hailed him in a voice that rang with amazement. Moreau, where the devil have you been hiding yourself these months? It was Le Chapoulier, the lawyer, the leader of the literary chamber of Rennes. Behind the skirts of Thespis, said Scaramouche, I don't understand. I didn't intend that you should. What of yourself, Isaac? And what of the world which seems to have been standing still of late? Standing still? Le Chapelier laughed. "'But where have you been, then, standing still?' "'He pointed across the square to a café, "'under the shadow of the gloomy prison. "'Let us go and drink a bavaroise. "'You are of all men the man we want, "'the man we have been seeking everywhere, "'and, behold, you drop from the skies into my path.' "'They crossed the square and entered the café. "'So you think the world has been standing still? "'Tieu Dieu!' I suppose you haven't heard of the royal order for the convocation of the states-general, or the terms of them, that we are to have what we demanded, what you demanded for us, here in Nantes. You haven't heard that the order has gone forth for the primary elections, the elections of the electors. You haven't heard of the fresh uproar in Rennes last month. The order was that the three estates should sit together at the states-general of the Balliage but in the balayage of Rennes the nobles must ever be recalcitrant. They took up arms, actually, six hundred of them with their Valtai, headed by your old friend Monsieur de la Tour d'Azire, and they were for slashing us, the members of the third estate, into ribbons so as to put an end to our insolence. He laughed delicately. But, by God, we showed them that we too could take up arms. It was what you yourself advocated here in Nantes, Last November we fought them a pitched battle in the streets, under the leadership of your namesake, Moreau, the provost, and we so peppered them that they were glad to take shelter in the Cordelier convent. That is the end of their resistance to the royal authority and the people's will. He ran on at great speed, detailing the events that had taken place, and finally came to the matter which had, he announced, been causing him to hunt for André-Louis, until he had all but despaired of finding him. Nantes was sending fifty delegates to the assembly of Rennes, which was to select the deputies to the third estate and edit their cahiers of grievances. Rennes itself was being as fully represented, whilst such villages as Gavriac were sending two delegates for every two hundred hearths or less. Each of these three had clamoured that André-Louis Moreau should be one of its delegates. Gavriac wanted him because he belonged to the village, and it was known there what sacrifices he had made in the popular cause. Rennes wanted him because it had heard his spirited address on the day of the shooting of the students, and Nantes, to whom his identity was unknown, asked for him as the speaker who had addressed them under the name of Omnes Omnibus, and who had framed for them the memorial that was believed so largely to have influenced M. Necker in formulating the terms of the convocation. Since he could not be found, the delegations had been made up without him, but now it happened that one or two vacancies had occurred in the Nantes representation, and it was the business of filling these vacancies that had brought Le Chapelier to Nantes. André-Louis firmly shook his head in answer to Le Chapelier's proposal. "'You refuse?' the other cried. "'Are you mad? Refuse, when you are demanded from so many sides? Do you realize that it is more than probable you will be elected one of the deputies, that you will be sent to the States-General at Versailles to represent us in this work of saving France?' But André-Louis, we know, was not concerned to save France. At the moment he was concerned to save two women— both of whom he loved, though in vastly different ways, from a man he had vowed to ruin. He stood firm in his refusal, until Le Chapelier dejectedly abandoned the attempt to persuade him. "'It is odd,' said André-Louis, "'that I should have been so deeply immersed in trifles "'as never to have perceived that Nantes was being politically active.' "'Active? My friend, it is a seething cauldron of political emotions!' "'it is kept quiet on the surface "'only by the persuasion that all goes well. "'At a hint to the contrary, it will boil over.' "'Would it so?' said Scaramouche thoughtfully. "'The knowledge may be useful.' "'And then he changed the subject. "'You know that Latour d'Azir is here. "'In Nantes he has courage if he shows himself. "'They are not a docile people, these Nantes, "'and they know his record.' and the party played in the Rising at Rennes. I marvel they haven't stoned him, but they will, sooner or later. It only needs that someone should suggest it. That is very likely, said André-Louis, and smiled. He doesn't show himself much, not in the streets at least, so that he has not the courage, you suppose, nor any kind of courage, as I told him once. He has only insolence. At parting, Le Chapelier again exhorted him to give thought to what he proposed. "'Send me word if you change your mind. I am lodged at the Cerf, and I shall be here until the day after tomorrow. morrow If you have ambition, this is your moment.' "'I have no ambition, I suppose,' said André Louis, and went his way. That night at the theatre he had a mischievous impulse to test what Le Chapelier had told him, of the state of public feeling in the city. They were playing the terrible captain, in the last act of which the empty cowardice of the bullying braggart Rodemont is revealed by Scaramouche. After the laughter, which the exposure of the roaring captain invariably produced, it remained for Scaramouche contemptuously to dismiss him in a phrase that varied nightly, according to the inspiration of the moment. This time he chose to give his phrase a political complexion. "'Thus, O Coward, is your emptiness exposed. "'Because of your long length and the great sword you carry "'and the angle at which you cock your hat, "'people have gone in fear of you, have believed in you, "'have imagined you to be as terrible and as formidable "'as you insolently make yourself appear. "'But at the first touch of true spirit you crumple up, you tremble.' "'You whine pitifully, and the great sword remains in your scabbard. "'You remind me of the privileged orders when confronted by the third estate.' "'It was audacious of him, and he was prepared for anything, "'a laugh, applause, indignation, or altogether. "'But he was not prepared for what came, "'and it came so suddenly and spontaneously from the groundlings "'and the body of those in the amphitheater. "'that he was almost scared by it. "'As a boy may be scared, "'who has held a match to a sun-scorched hayrick, "'it was a hurricane of furious applause. "'Men leapt to their feet, sprang up onto the benches, "'waving their hats in the air, "'deafening him with the terrific uproar of their acclamations, "'and it rolled on and on, "'nor ceased until the curtain fell. "'Scaramouche stood meditatively, smiling with tight lips.' At the last moment he caught a glimpse of Monsieur de la Tour d'Azur's face, thrust farther forward than usual from the shadows of his box, and it was a face set in anger, with eyes on fire. Mon dieu! laughed Audemont, recovering from the real scare that had succeeded his histrionic terror. But you have a great trick of tickling them in the right place, Scaramouche. Scaramouche looked up at him and smiled. It can be useful upon occasion, said he, and went off to his dressing-room to change. But a reprimand awaited him. He was delayed at the theatre by matters concerned with the scenery of the new piece they were to mount upon the morrow. By the time he was rid of the business, the rest of the company had long since left. He called a chair, and had himself carried back to the inn in solitary state. It was one of the many minor luxuries his comparatively affluent present circumstances permitted. Coming into that upstairs room that was common to all the troupe, he found Monsieur Binet talking loudly and vehemently. He had caught sounds of his voice whilst he had upon the stairs. As he entered, Binet broke off short and wheeled to face him. You here at last! It was so odd a greeting that André-Louis did no more than look his mild surprise. I await your explanations of the disgraceful scene you provoked to Disgraceful? Is it disgraceful that the public should applaud me? The public? The rabble, you mean? Do you want to deprive us of the patronage of old gentlefolk by vulgar appeals to the low passions of the mob? André-Louis stepped past Monsieur Binet and forward to the table. He shrugged contemptuously. The man offended him, after all. "'You exaggerate grossly, as usual.' "'I do not exaggerate, and I am the master in my own theatre. This is the Binet troupe, and it shall be conducted in the Binet way.' "'Who are the gentlefolk, the loss of whose patronage to the faye will be so poignantly felt?' asked André Louis. "'You imply that there are none?' "'See how wrong you are. "'After the play tonight, "'Monsieur le Marquis de la Tour d'Azire "'came to me and spoke to me in the severest terms "'about your scandalous outburst. "'I was forced to apologise, and... "'The more fool you,' said André-Louis. "'A man who respected himself "'would have shown that gentleman the door.' "'Monsieur Binet's face began to empurple. "'You call yourself the head of the Binet troupe. "'You boast.' That you will be master in your own theatre, and you stand like a lackey to take the orders of the first insolent fellow who comes to your green room to tell you that he does not like a line spoken by one of your company. I say again that had you really respected yourself, you would have turned him out. There was a murmur of approval from several members of the company, who, having heard the arrogant tone assumed by the Marquis, "'were filled with resentment against the slur cast upon them all. "'And I say further,' André-Louis went on, "'that a man who respects himself on quite other grounds "'would have been only too glad to have seized this pretext "'to show Monsieur de la Tour d'Azire the door. "'What do you mean by that?' "'There was a rumble of thunder in the question. "'André-Louis' eyes swept round the company assembled at the supper-table. "'Where is Climène?' He asked sharply. Leandre leapt up to answer him, white in the face, tense and quivering with excitement. She left the theatre in the Marquis de la Tour d'Azire's carriage, immediately after the performance. We heard him offer to drive her to this inn. Andre Louis glanced at the timepiece on the overmantel. He seemed unnaturally calm. That would be an hour ago, rather more. And she has not yet arrived? His eyes sought M. Binet's. M. Binet's eyes eluded his glance. Again it was Leandre who answered him. Not yet. Ah. André-Louis sat down and poured himself wine. There was an oppressive silence in the room. Leandre watched him expectantly, Columbine commiseratingly. Even Monsieur Binet appeared to be waiting for a cue from Scaramouche but Scaramouche disappointed him. "'Have you left me anything to eat?' he asked. Platters were pushed towards him. He helped himself calmly to food, and ate in silence, apparently with a good appetite. Monsieur Binet sat down, poured himself wine, and drank. Presently he attempted to make conversation with one and another. He was answered curtly, in monosyllables, Monsieur Binet did not appear to be in favour with his troop that night. At long length came a rumble of wheels below, and a rattle of halting hoofs, then voices, the high trilling laugh of Climène floating upwards. Andre-Louis went on eating unconcernedly. What an actor! said Harlequin under his breath to Polichinelle, and Polichinelle nodded gloomily. She came in. A leading lady taking the stage, head high, chin thrust forward, eyes dancing with laughter. She expressed triumph and arrogance. Her cheeks were flushed, and there was some disorder in the mass of nut-brown hair that crowned her head. In her left hand she carried an enormous bouquet of white camellias. On its middle finger a diamond of great price drew almost at once by its effulgence the eyes of all her father sprang to meet her with an unusual display of paternal tenderness. "'At last, my child!' He conducted her to the table. She sank into a chair, a little wearily, a little nervelessly, but the smile did not leave her face, not even when she glanced across at Scaramouche. It was only Leandre, observing her closely with hungry, scowling stare, who detected something as of fear.' in the hazel eyes momentarily seen between the fluttering of her lids. André-Louis, however, still went on eating stolidly, without so much as a look in her direction. Gradually the company came to realize that just as surely as a scene was brooding, just so surely would there be no scene as long as they remained. It was polichinelle at last, who gave the signal by rising and withdrawing, and within two minutes none remained in the room but M. Binet, his daughter, and André-Louis. And then at last André-Louis set down knife and fork, washed his throat with a draught of burgundy, and sat back in his chair to consider Climène. "'I trust,' said he, "'that you had a pleasant ride, mademoiselle?' "'Most pleasant, monsieur.' Impudently she strove to emulate his coolness, but did not completely succeed. And not unprofitable, if I may judge that jewel at this distance. It should be worth at least a couple of hundred louis, and that is a formidable sum, even to so wealthy a nobleman as Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir. Would it be impertinent in one who has had some notion of becoming your husband, to ask you, mademoiselle, what you have given him in return? Monsieur Binet uttered a gross laugh, a queer mixture of cynicism and contempt. I have given nothing, said Clemen, indignantly. Ah then the jewel is in the nature of a payment in advance. My God, man, you're not decent, Monsieur Binet protested. Decent Andre louis smoldering eyes turned to discharge upon Monsieur Binet. "'such a fulmination of contempt "'that the old scoundrel shifted uncomfortably in his chair. "'Did you mention decency, Binet? "'Almost you make me lose my temper, "'which is a thing that I detest above all others.' "'Slowly his glance turned to Climane, "'who sat with elbows on the table, "'her chin cupped in her palms, "'regarding him with something between scorn and defiance. "'Mademoiselle,' he said slowly, "'I desire you purely in your own interests "'to consider whither you are going. "'I am well able to consider it for myself "'and to decide without advice from you, monsieur.' "'And now you've got your answer,' chuckled Binet. "'I hope you like it.' "'André-Louis had paled a little. "'There was incredulity in his great sombre eyes.' as they continued steadily to regard her of monsieur binet he took no notice surely mademoiselle you cannot mean that willingly with open eyes and a full understanding of what you do you would exchange an honorable wifehood for for the thing that such men as monsieur de la tour d'azier may have in store for you monsieur binet made a wide gesture and swung to his daughter you hear him the mealy-mouthed prude perhaps you'll believe at last that marriage with him would be the ruin of you he would always be there the inconvenient husband to mar your every chance girl she tossed her lovely head in agreement with her father I begin to find him tiresome with his silly jealousies she confessed as a husband I'm afraid he would be impossible André-Louis felt a constriction of the heart, but, always the actor, he showed nothing of it. He laughed a little, not very pleasantly, and rose. "'I bow to your choice, Mademoiselle. "'I pray that you may not regret it.' "'Regret it?' cried Monsieur Binet. "'He was laughing, relieved to see his daughter at last rid of this suitor,' "'of whom he had never approved, "'if we accept those few hours "'when he really believed him "'to be an eccentric of distinction. "'And what shall she regret, "'that she accepted the protection "'of a nobleman so powerful and wealthy "'that as a mere trinket "'he gives her a jewel "'worth as much as an actress earns "'in a year at the Comédie-Française?' "'He got up and advanced towards André-Louis. "'His mood became conciliatory.' "'Come, come, my friend. "'No rancour now. "'What the devil! "'You wouldn't stand in the girl's way. "'You can't really blame her for making this choice. "'Have you thought what it means to her? "'Have you thought that under the protection of such a gentleman "'there are no heights which she may not reach? "'Don't you see the wonderful luck of it? "'Surely if you're fond of her, "'particularly being of a jealous temperament, "'you wouldn't wish it otherwise.' André-Louis looked at him in silence for a long moment. Then he laughed again. Oh, you are fantastic, he said. You are not real. He turned on his heel and strode to the door. The action, and more the contempt of his look, laugh, and words, stung Monsieur Binet to passion, drove out the conciliatoriness of his mood. "'Fantastic, are we?' he cried, "'turning to follow the departing Scaramouche with his little eyes "'that now were inexpressibly evil. "'Fantastic that we should prefer the powerful protection "'of this great nobleman "'to marriage with a beggarly, nameless bastard! "'Oh, we are fantastic!' "'André Louis turned, his hand upon the door-handle. "'No,' he said, I was mistaken. You are not fantastic. You are just vile, both of you. And he went out. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Scaramouche, part 6 of 12, by Raphael Sabatini. If you have enjoyed this book, feel free to visit our new website at classictalesaudiobooks.com and download some free audiobooks. You'll find a variety of longer titles available for free during the pandemic. If you know anyone who could benefit from some smart entertainment, please let them know about our free stuff. They're welcome to it. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week, and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper.